Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, Esther, chapters 7 and 8. We cannot get away from the reality of the spirit of Amalek playing a significant role in our story of Esther and this intended annihilation of the Jews by Haman. Now I coupled this biblical incident with the modern day conundrum that dominates so much international diplomatic mental time and energy how to attain peace in the Middle East. And first and foremost that solution, it's believed, revolves around finding a way to deal with the Israel problem. However, as we discussed last week, national leaders see the Israel problem as a political one. Something that can be solved with land swaps and education and peace treaties and goodwill while in reality it's a spiritual issue of a blatant attempt to thwart the Lord's plan of redemption. And so essentially every effort made to treat the problem diplomatically is like trying to put out a fire by dousing it with gasoline. When we left off we were concluding chapter 6 with the king's officials coming to fetch Haman that they could take him to Queen Esther's palace quarters for the second banquet she's planned. Now the purpose of the banquet is to gain the king's ear in private and make him more disposed to hear Esther's plea for the lives of her people but it was also to expose, to entrap Haman that he might be permanently removed from the scene. And to set the tone, we saw that Haman was currently in a terribly agitated, a despondent state because after having spent a portion of the day in a private gathering with the king and queen of Persia which of course pleased him to no end on his way home he encountered Mordecai, who refused to acknowledge his presence, let alone his high status as second in command of Persia. And just as it is with the Arab world today, in that hatred towards the Jewish people and an inability to accept the existence of Israel controls their national policies. It controls their countenance. It's the same way with Haman fabulously wealthy a man with ten sons holding power and position second only to King Xerxes himself he found himself unhappy discontent virtually incapable of enjoying his nearly unapproachable station in life and this is all because he hated one man Mordecai the Jew and because he hated one Jew, he wanted them all wiped out. It is this underlying scenario of the book of Esther that has much to do with many scholars refusing to accept Esther as anything but Jewish fiction. For them, 
the idea of a man wanting to wipe out a race of people for almost no discernible or rational reason makes no sense. So this has to be a folk tale. And yet, when it comes to the Jewish people, this scenario has played out time and again in history since their exile to Babylon, and it's going to play out to its most violent conclusion in the end times. So let's reread, or rather, let's read Esther chapter 7. And we're only going to be reading the Hebrew version because there's no Greek additions to this chapter. So turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1094. Follow with me, please. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And then the king again said to Esther at the wine banquet, Whatever your request, Queen Esther, you will be granted it. Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, it will be done. Esther the queen answered, If I have won your favor, king, if it pleases the king, then what I ask be given me is my own life and the lives of my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, exterminated. If we had only been sold as men and women slaves, I would have remained quiet. Since then our trouble wouldn't have been worth the damage it would have caused the king to alter the situation. King Ahasuerus asked Esther the queen, Who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, A ruthless enemy. It's this wicked Haman. Haman stood aghast, terrified before the king and queen. In a rage, the king got up from the wine back when he went out to the palace garden, but Haman remained, pleading with Esther the queen to spare his life. For he could see that the king had decided to do him in. Haman had just fallen on the couch where Esther was when the king returned from the palace garden to the wine bag and he shouted, Is he even going to rape the queen here in the palace before my very eyes? And the moment these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harvona, one of the king's attendants, said, Look! The gallows, 75 feet high that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke only good for the king, that's standing there at Haman's house. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he'd prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. It's alright to chuckle over that. It's just fine. <clears throat> Haman, no doubt did not arrive at Esther's second banquet with the euphoric sense of self-satisfaction and assurance as he had only 24 hours earlier at that first banquet. Haman's wife and family had just told him that he is in serious trouble because of Mordecai and that his downfall was etched in stone. The first verse of chapter 7 speaks of Haman going to the banquet but an interesting Hebrew word is used to describe it. Shata. Shata. Now, shata means to drink, usually meaning to drink wine. The second verse then says the king, king came to the banquet of wine. The Hebrew word used here for banquet is mishte, 
Mishte, and it means feasting or celebrating. So the idea is that the main feature of these Persian royal banquets, including Esther's, is drinking alcohol. It was cultural. It was expected that people who went to banquets and social gatherings got drunk. Now this is as opposed to the seven biblical or the Levitical feasts, which employs the Hebrew word Chag. Chag is used to describe a feast or an observance that's holy in nature, divinely ordained. Mishte indicates a feast that is essentially a party, and it has no religious connection. And Shita describes the drinking of wine and other intoxicating beverages that often, that often accompanies a mishte, a party. So the observance of Purim that we celebrated just a few days ago is characterized in Esther as a mishte, a secular party, as opposed to a chag, a pious, God-ordained holy feast. The word chag is nowhere found in the book of Esther. So this confirms that Esther intentionally used a traditional Persian party gathering to get her husband, King Xerxes, King Hasuerus, tipsy, in a pretty good mood. And at the same time, getting Haman drunk. So he'd let his guard down. And he'd do and he'd say things that he might not do otherwise. In verse 2, we have the king bringing up the matter of Esther's mysterious and to this point, unknown request. In fact, the king even calls Esther queen, which emphasizes that he continues to view her with respect and as having royal authority. But in a subtle and probably not intended way, calling her queen makes it clear that of the three people present at this intimate gathering, Haman holds last place. Esther is cleverly manipulating these circumstances. She has, in risking her life, come to the king with a matter of life and death. But thus far, she's held it back. The king has become so curious as to what this important request might be. He can't get it off of his mind. So rather than Esther having to push her delicate and her dangerous request onto the king, he inquires of her yet again. Using her charm and her wisdom, Esther has reversed the circumstances. She's no longer pursuing the king. The king's pursuing her. And knowing that the time is ripe, Esther now tells him this urgent matter. So using very flowery and formal language, Esther draws out her answer, which also kind of heightens the, the tension and piques the king's interest. And since it's now obvious to Esther that the king has the greatest affection for her, and whatever the reason was for the king not calling for her for 30 days, it must have been nothing personal, but rather some matter of state that occupied him totally. So she's not only relieved, but seeing that he has acquiesced to her every request so far, while showing her the greatest patience, she begins building her case. And she bases it on her intimate relationship with the king and his desire for her. 
If I have found favor with the king, she begins, and then immediately identifies herself with her people. It must have startled the king, who is positively gushing with tenderness and admiration for Esther when she asks for her life and for that of her people. See, this terse statement must have had the king's mind reeling and thinking, what in the world are you talking about? We have been sold, she goes on to explain. And this, of course, is referring back to chapter 3, when Haman goes to Xerxes with his diabolical plan. In Esther 3, 8-9, through 9, we hear this. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, There is a particular people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it please the king, have a decree written for their destruction. I will hand over 330 tons, talents really, of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. And since this meeting happened no more than three months earlier, the king would have remembered that private session with Haman. And now he realizes he's been misled. Thinking that Haman was a dedicated and a loyal servant of the empire and of the king, and that Haman only wanted the best for Persia, was willing to turn over a fortune to the state treasury if it was needed, turns out that his offer was insincere. And it was only to get royal permission to settle a personal vendetta so that Haman could reclaim his honor. Now Esther underscores this connection between Haman's offer to Xerxes of massive amounts of silver and the formal decree ordering all Persians to join in killing the Jews 11 months later. She does so by using the exact words that he used in the decree. To destroy, to kill, to exterminate. And to further emphasize the heinous nature of this proposed genocide, she goes on to say that if this wicked person's intent was merely to make the Jewish men and women of Persia into bond servants and into slaves, she would have kept her peace. She wouldn't even have bothered the king with the matter. However, there is a more subtle message involved here that modern Westerners would pick would uh, would not pick up on, and I'm going to explain this because it has New Testament implications. Because slavery is seen as a disgraceful and a, a repugnant part of the history of the USA and Europe and, and our not distant past, the subject brings up great emotions, especially within Christians. And so it can cause misconceptions when the term is used in the Bible. In the world of the Middle East, especially so in the biblical era, to say that you are someone's slave doesn't necessarily mean that you've been sold into slavery, that you've been purchased for money as as we picture it. It was often used as a figure of speech. 
and it indicated a voluntary and a happy loyalty to someone. It was a gracious exaggeration. It was also a common expression to say, I am your servant. Again, this doesn't mean it in the sense that someone has been purchased for their labor. Rather, it is meant to convey a sense of informal commitment to someone, usually resulting from gratitude. Rather like our saying, I'm at your service. Now later on in history, we'll even hear of students of rabbis speaking of themselves as slaves and bond servants to those same rabbis. It just means that they recognize their rabbi's superiority and their authority and their will and their own willingness to follow those rabbi's teachings and instructions. Not that the rabbi in some ways owns them or can control them against their wills. So in the same vein, we read this in the book of Romans. Romans 1.1 from Shaul, from Paul, Saul, a slave of the Messiah Yeshua, an emissary, because I was called and set apart for the good news of God. Paul was not literally enslaved to Christ. He had voluntarily submitted to Christ's superiority and his authority, willing, ready to follow his teachings and instructions because he finds them superior. Paul used to be a slave to Gamaliel, his rabbi from many years earlier. But he has now switched his allegiance. And he calls Yeshua, Jesus, his master. And so, we also read this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 21-23. Were you a slave when you were called? Well, don't let it bother you. Although if you gain your freedom, take advantage of the opportunity. For a person who was a slave when he was called is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, someone who was a free man when he was called is now a slave of the Messiah. You were bought at a price, so do not become slaves of other human beings. See, in this passage, there is a mixture of referring to actual slavery with the Middle Eastern expression of servitude as a form of voluntary commitment to a teacher or to a leader. It is, a, it is meant to compare and contrast these two conditions. And further, since people of that era understood that calling oneself a slave was a common expression, it wasn't a statement of literal fact, so it was meant as a metaphor it was meant as a metaphor when it says you were bought at a price. The price, of course, being Messiah's blood. And the intent of this is to draw a parallel between being an actual earthly slave who was purchased against your will, purchased with money, and a slave in the spiritual sense whereby we were purchased figuratively and willingly with Christ's atoning sacrifice. And then we have this familiar passage in Romans 6. Romans 6, 16-19 says, Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, then of the one whom you are obeying, you are slaves, whether of sin, 
which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to being made righteous. By God's grace, you who were once slaves to sin, you obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed. And after you had been set free from sin, you have become enslaved to righteousness. I am using popular language because your human nature is so weak. That last line is important. We see it now more clearly that slaves to sin, once again, is a cultural expression. It doesn't have a sense of a financial transaction of actual ownership, but rather you have chosen to submit yourself to sin, therefore making sin master over you. But now by renouncing your allegiance to your master of sin, you have switched your loyalty. You've given authority of yourself over to the master of righteousness. Notice that thankfully, Paul even explains in this passage, he's just using popular language in his illustration of slaves and servants to make his point. So we can see how easily misunderstood a common popular expression of the ancient times could be and think that real slavery in all of its ugly aspects is what's being discussed as opposed to merely indicating a willful submission of ourselves to some situation or person, not that we've been technically bought and sold and are real and actual possessions of the buyer. On the other hand, because this expression was common and its implications were well understood in the Middle East, Esther is essentially accusing Haman of intending to purchase the Jews, to misappropriate them out from under King Xerxes and to make this segment, this segment of Jews, of Persian society, his own. He would be their master. While that's not precisely what she said, Oh, she well knew that as royalty, Xerxes would interpret it exactly that way. And he would become incensed at the notion that someone may have tried to trick him and thus set up his own kingdom by stealing Xerxes' people right out from underneath him. Therefore, people who were slaves for Xerxes, the Jews, not in a, it's, it's in a figurative, not a literal sense, they now become purchased slaves with all that silver for Haman. Now, they're no longer under Xerxes' control and authority. So there's a great deal more at stake and in play in Esther's explanation of her request to her husband than only her life. And it was presented in a way that was a surefire hot button to the king. The matter was now elevated to treason and treachery at the highest level. And it represented a threat to his kingship. At least that was the spin that Esther put on it. 
Now having the king's full focus and all of his attention now at this point, Esther is immediately asked the $64,000 question. Who is he? Most English translations have Esther say that this person is a ruthless enemy or an adversary and an enemy. Either way, the point is, this man is not just an enemy of the king, he is an enemy of Esther and also an enemy of her race of people, the Jews. Immediately she fingers Haman, who's standing there flabbergasted. Esther has just maneuvered things now such that the king, the queen, and the Jews are united as the enemy of Haman. Boy, she's good at this. And it seems that the king had not known Esther's nationality up until now. See, his was a diverse, multicultural empire. And years earlier, he had opened up the opportunity to all virgin girls of his empire who were beautiful enough to vie to be his queen. Which was proof in itself that he saw the beauty present in each and every race. Ethnicity simply didn't seem to matter to him. And as we discussed earlier, there's no hint that there was any kind of discrimination or oppression against the Jews of Persia or Babylon. In fact, the Bible tells us of Jews who made their way to the elite echelon of government in those two empires. The Jewish Esther is the queen of the unequaled media Persian empire and Mordecai is about to become a very powerful man in the Persian government. Now the matter turns ironic, and I think very comical again. The king needs a moment to think and gather himself. A delightful and relaxing 48 hours with Esther has just turned into an anxiety-driven nightmare. He rushes out into the palace garden, apparently to mull things over, but the stunned Haman, well, he just stands there frozen as he realizes that not just his position, but his survival is suddenly in doubt. He begins to plead with Esther to spare his life, no doubt having no earthly idea she was a Jew. And the passage says that Haman fell onto Esther's couch, which means that he assumed the position of submission He prostrated himself before her as he begged forgiveness. However, in the so doing, he leaned on the couch very near to where Esther was sitting. The king returns at that very moment that he's flung himself on the couch next to Esther and this compromising position further outrages the king as he accuses him of essentially accosting the king in his momentary absence. The complete Jewish Bible and some others say the king thought he was trying to rape Esther, but that's not what the verse says. It's just an interpreter's attempt to draw a mental picture of what he or she thought was going on in the king's mind. But what we've encountered is actually yet another Middle Eastern cultural taboo that Westerners usually know nothing about. Esther, even as the queen, is part of the king's harem. And a harem is a sacred and it's an important possession of the king. It's his symbol of power. It's a symbol of his dynasty. 
Despite the rather typical view presented in modern times of a harem being essentially a private pleasure palace for the king, in fact it had more to do with diplomatic arrangements than anything else. Royal wives and concubines were the surety and the visible proof of peace agreements and of political alliances. But these women were also the king's private property. And the rules for how anyone could associate with the king's harem were very strict. And they were steeped in centuries of cultural mores and and norms. Note how eunuchs, castrated males usually, were the supervisors and protectors of the harem's females. And also how the girls of the harem, they were never allowed to be seen in public except in rare instances. This wasn't slavery and deprivation. This was Middle Eastern modesty. For Haman to fling himself next to Esther on her private couch, well, this was the worst possible breach of harem etiquette. Haman fully understood these rules, but in his panic and terror, and no doubt his assumption of of, of privilege beyond any other person, it caused him to act in kind of a knee-jerk reaction. All he could think of was to get Esther to change her story sufficiently to save his life. But what he did in approaching her in such an aggressive way was considered an affront to the king's exclusive sexual access to his wife. Thus, what the king accused him of was not rape per se, but rather an unforgivable breach of harem protocol because he had violated Esther's modesty. In Middle Eastern thinking, when another man partook of the king's harem or even trespassed against their modesty, it was a declaration of overthrowing the king. We saw that same thing happen when King David's son Absalom had sex with the ten concubines that David had left behind to care for the palace. His act staked his claim to the harem. Now recall that this occurred literally on the roof of David's palace because it was a public announcement that Absalom has declared himself the new king of Israel. King Xerxes has accused Haman of virtually the same offense. Well, his fate was sealed at that moment. Then there is this statement that has caused translators a lot of heartburn. At the end of verse 8 it says, The moment these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. The king's words covered Haman's face. What does that mean? Well, the best explanation that my research could uncover is this. It was customary in ancient Persia to cover the face of a condemned person who was being executed, kind of like the way a person being hanged has a hood placed over his head. Thus, the thought is that the moment the king accused Haman of this inexcusable breach of harem protocol, the words came out of his mouth, Haman was condemned, so his face symbolically covered for execution, he became a dead man walking. 
One of the king's attendants named Harvona draws the king's attention to the fact, hey king, you know what? There's a suitable impalement pole already built. It's all ready to be used. Matter of fact, it's the one in front of Haman's house that he intended to use on Mordecai. We again see the English word gallows employed, but that's a mistake. The wooden structure was not used to kill the person by hanging by the neck. It was a pole where the dead or the dying body was impaled and then it was displayed as a public humiliation. The king ordered Haman to be impaled upon it. If ever the saying, he was hoisted on his own petard, was appropriate, this has to be it. Let's move on to chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, page 1094, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. That same day, King Ahasuerus came to the house of Haman, the enemy of uh, uh, Jews, uh, to Esther the queen. Gave the house of Haman, rather, the enemy of the Jews to Esther the queen. Also, Mordecai appeared before the king, for Esther had revealed her relationship to her. The king removed his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman. He gave it to Mordecai, and then Esther put Mordecai in charge of Haman's house. Again Esther spoke to the king. Now this time she fell at his feet and begged him with tears to put an end to the mischief that Haman the Agagite had caused by the scheme he had worked out against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther got up and stood in front of the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, if I have won his favor, if the matter seems right to the king and if I have his approval then let an order be written rescinding the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamdata the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews and all of the provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster that will overcome my people? How can I endure seeing the extermination of my kinsmen? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and Mordecai the Jew, Listen, I gave Esther the house of Haman and they hanged him on the gallows because he threatened the lives of the Jews. You should issue a decree in the king's name for whatever you want concerning the Jews and seal it with the king's signet ring because a decree written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can't be rescinded by anyone. The king's secretaries were summoned at that time on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. And a decree was written according to everything Mordecai ordered concerning the Jews to the army commanders, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its script and to each people in their language and also to the Jews in their script and language. They wrote it in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. They sent the letters by couriers on horseback riding fast horses used in the king's service and bred from the royal stock. The letter said that the king had granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and defend their lives by destroying, killing, and exterminating any forces of any people or province that would attack them the little ones or their women or would try to seize their goods as plunder on the designated day in any of the provinces of King Ahasuerus namely the 13th day of the 12th month the month of Adar a 
copy of the edict was to be issued as a decree in every province and proclaimed to all the peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance against their enemies. Couriers riding fast horses used in the king's services left quickly, pressed by the king's order. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the capital. Now meanwhile, Mordecai left the king's presence arrayed in royal blue and white, wearing a large gold crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan shouted for joy. For the Jews, all was light and gladness, joy and honor. In every province and city where the king's order and decree arrived, the Jews had gladness and joy, a feast, a holiday. Many from the peoples of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Now this chapter has a long Greek edition and we're going to read and examine it next time. For now, the Hebrew version has enough to deal with. This chapter addresses a very real problem facing Esther. Haman was dead. But the edict to wipe out the Jews that he had tricked the king into agreeing to was still in force. And the early part of our Esther story, the part that opened the door for Esther to become the queen of Persia, this demonstrated that regardless of how silly and how vain it might sound to us, it was a reality that a law signed by the king couldn't be overturned. Not even by the king. So, since revocation is not a possibility, then some way has to be found to neutralize this death edict. The chapter begins with Haman having been executed and publicly shamed by being impaled on a stake. But that wasn't going to be the end of the consequences of his actions. Verse 1 explains that the house of Haman was given to Queen Esther as her personal estate. The term, the house of Haman, means everything he owned. And that included Esther's authority to do whatever she wanted to do with Haman's surviving family members. And the first words of this verse are, This very day. So the king wasted no time in taking actions against Haman's family. See, this, his impulsiveness that often led into making big mistakes that are central to the story still hasn't been curbed. This gift from her husband made Esther a fabulously wealthy woman in her own right. We know of examples both in the Bible and outside of it of kings confiscating the property of condemned criminals and making it either state property or the king's personal property. In Herodotus' work entitled The Histories, Oriotes the Persian was punished for betraying uh, uh, Polycrates. He was executed and his estate was confiscated and brought to the ca uh, capital city of the empire, Susa, Shushan. We see a similar thing happening in the story of Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. So for Queen Esther to receive Haman's estate upon his demise, it's just kind of par for the course. We also find Mordecai appearing before the king for the first time. That he was an official 
for the Persian Empire prior to this moment no way meant he had a personal audience with Xerxes. No doubt Xerxes knew few of the large number of lower level officials. But because the king was now aware of Esther's close family relationship with Mordecai, and Mordecai has already proved his loyalty when he reported the assassination plot, and because Mordecai has already been presented to the people of Susa as ordered by Xerxes himself when Mordecai was led around the city wearing royal robes and riding on the king's royal steed, it was just a short step, logical perhaps, to having Mordecai replace the now deceased Haman as the king's second in command. So we find the king recovering the signet ring he had given to Haman and then turning it over to Mordecai, thereby giving Mordecai the same powers to govern in the king's name that Haman had possessed for a time. Now this is going to be important for the next phase of our story, but it got even better for Mordecai. What more perfect use for Haman's former estate than to give charge of it over to him? And it was Esther's privilege to do so. Besides, what was Esther going to do with it? I mean, the wealth of the kingdom that was near limitless and the part of the royal palace where the harem resided was hers. It's not like she could have moved into Haman's house. Although it's not clear whether Mordecai's appointment and Esther's continued pleading in verse 3 for the lives of her Jewish race happened at that same time or a little bit later. What is clear is as far as the king was concerned, the matter of saving Esther's life was separate from saving the lives of Esther's people. Two different issues. Here's the thing. We could just ignore that part We just read about Esther's profuse weeping at the king's feet as she begged that he would make an edict to rescind that previous one. We could chalk it up to the actions of a supreme drama queen, but we'd miss the point. Esther fully understood what a seemingly insolvable dilemma lay before her. Her predecessor, Queen Vashti, had been removed from her throne and booted from the harem due to the rash actions of this drunken king and the arrogant and self-serving counsel of one of the king's advisors. As much as the king wanted Vashti back, no way could be found. So the only solution to his pain was to find a new wife for him, an exceedingly beautiful one that had helped him forget about Vashti. But what can be done for the Jews? I mean, it was a settled matter. It was chiseled in stone, which the citizens, which was that the citizens of Persia were to kill all the Jews and then loot all their belongings. By custom, this order couldn't be overturned. So the bitter tears and the extensive weeping represented Esther's best try at convincing her husband to do the unthinkable, to go against Persian law and to overturn his royal edict. To this he flatly said no. No, he's essentially done all he can for her Jewish people. But the king did give Esther and Mordecai an alternative. They should create an edict to do whatever they thought best could be done for the Jews. 
And then it can be sealed in the king's name and authority because Mordecai possessed the king's signet ring. Now what might that action be? Well, the king offers no suggestion. And as of this moment, neither Esther nor Mordecai knew how to proceed. We should recognize that this king was not someone who fixed problems. He tended to create them and then turn them over, turn this mess over to counselors to solve. But the good news is that just as Haman's edict is permanent and it can't be revoked, whatever it is that Mordecai and Esther come up with can also not be revoked. And we're going to see and determine just what can be done at our next meeting.